Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 29th, 2022. Um, lots of talk, of course, both on and off the show about the war in Ukraine, but there are lots of other kinds of wars as well going on, less well-publicized, less overt, but perhaps in the long term more significant. Uh, we've done a lot of shows about class warfare, the labor involved in class warfare. Last year, we had Michael Lind on the show talking about the need, I think, in his mind for class warfare in America. Uh, his book, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite, talks about the need to unionize, to organize labor against what he calls this managerial elite. Um, I had the author of Nomadland on the show last year as well, talking about, uh, at least in COVID, it seems like a long time ago, whether we're heading for irreversible de Great Depression. I'm not quite sure if that's the case anymore. But her excellent book, Nomad Land, which of course was um, inspired the film, which won the Oscar last year, Surviving in America in the 21st Century, focuses on a different uh, kind of labor in the 21st century, uh, a, a labor of a precariat of people partially employed. Um, and I had another labor organizer on the show last year as well, Sarah Horowitz. Uh, talking about the need to give trade unions rights. She develops a new theory of labor organization called mutualism, uh, building the next economy from the ground up, her book suggests. And I really enjoyed, actually, my conversation with Sarah, uh, who I'm not sure if she's the daughter or granddaughter of a very prominent American labor organizer in any event, and an incredibly interesting and important family. Uh, today, we're back to class warfare and labor, but we're talking on the front line with um, Daisy Pitkin, who's a labor organizer and thinker, and has a wonderful new book out on her experiences on, indeed, the front line of the class war. The book is called On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. Um, Daisy is joining me from uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, which she called the Paris of the East, um, maybe the Paris of the West too. Daisy, two women, who are the two women in your story on, on the line? Who are the, 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 the key labor organizers in this struggle for labor rights and freedom? The, the two women are me, the narrator and author, and also I was a young new organizer um, on a series of campaigns in Phoenix, Arizona, to organize the dangerous industrial laundry industry there. And the other woman is a worker leader named Alma, who was a good friend of mine, um, and also one of the gutsiest worker leaders I have ever met in my life as an organizer. And she not only led the organizing at her own factory, then turned around and organized other factories in the city to help raise standards um, kind of across the city and across the state of Arizona. Tell me more about Alma, her background, why she became a, a labor organizer and her fate. 
Alma is an immigrant from northern Mexico. She uh, moved to Arizona in the early 90s and started work first at a bakery and then at, the, at an industrial laundry where she worked for 25 years. Um, and, you know, one of the central questions in On the Line, my book, is what is it that causes some workers, some people to be able to stand up and fight for a union in their own workplace, despite vicious anti-union campaigns often, despite their desperate need to hang on to their jobs, which are their livelihoods? What causes some people to be able to stand up and fight in the way that Alma did? And what causes other others of her coworkers, other laundry workers in Phoenix to not be able to fight? Um, the book really thinks hard and kind of wonders about that. It's a question that Alma and I talked about often um, in the book. And, you know, she is just one of those people who I think was able to stand up and fight. She grew up in a family that uh, fought in the peasant land struggles in Mexico, and she kind of knew what it was to fight. And through by witnessing her own capacity to fight um, for a union, I think it sort of it sort of grew her capacity. It transformed her and and allowed her to become this amazing leader that she was and is. The issue of agency comes up a lot in our show, um, Daisy, and I guess it comes up um, in your book as well with Alma and, and I guess also with yourself. Um, we've done a number of shows, and particularly over the last couple of years, with the State of America. Kerry Arsenault, who actually a uh, wonderful writer, brilliant book, Milltown, um, she blurbs your book. She writes about the fate of a certain America, reckoning, uh, her book, Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains. And her teacher, uh, Dale Maharidge, another very prominent American writer, had a new book out uh, a year or two ago called Fuck to Birth, Recalibrating the American Dream for the 2020s. They both talk, I think, about the need for individual agency in making and remaking our history. Do you use that word agency or are there other words used to describe uh, Alma and yourself in terms of this fight for justice? Uh, what a good question. I think it begs many, many more questions as good questions do. So my book thinks a lot about agency and it thinks about the complex relationship between paid staff union organizers such as myself and workers who we are helping to organize. Um, where does the agency lie in that situation where organizers are paid to sort of foment a, an organizing drive among a group of workers and then allow those workers um, through training and facilitation to gain control of their own organizing uh, inside the workplace and then form a union that they are in control of in sort of a, a grassroots rank and file way. And I think a lot about what that sort of what the, the power dynamic between the two sides of that equation, what it looks like, what it what it looks like in sort of a traditional union organizing campaign and what it can look like, what it's starting to look like on campaigns like the Starbucks workers campaign that's happening now across the country, which is truly a grassroots groundswell of workers organizing themselves and each other. Um, 
So I think a lot about the role of the union organizer and then the the sort of fate of rank and file members of unions and how much control they have over the organizations that they build. Um, it's a real question that I trouble and kind of dig into in the book. Um, I think this question of individual agency is a really, is an interesting one. And it um, is in conversation maybe with the book that you brought up earlier, mentioned earlier, Mutualism. What is- You're familiar with the book. I am familiar with the book, yeah. What did you think of it? I thought it was very good. I thought it was really, yeah, I thought it was amazing. And I think, um, you know, I I think it sort of is in line with some of the thinking I do in my own book on the line because, you know, I think that a lot of stories about movements of resistance tend to focus on the thing that is being resisted, whether it's a system of oppression or a group of people that have a lot of power that they're wielding in irresponsible and violent ways. It, they focus on the thing that is being resisted and on how that thing is being deconstructed or torn apart, rather than focusing on the thing that's being built along the way with the world that can exist inside the movement of resistance that is is rising in contrast to the thing that's being resisted. I think that's a question that gets raised in that book. And it's certainly one that I think about in my own book and in my life as an organizer. Um, one thing that ties you, Sarah Horowitz, um, Jessica Bruder, and indeed many of the people that Jessica writes about in her book is that you're all women. There is a strong female, perhaps feminist component to, to your book. There's also a strong historical element. Do you think the big difference between labor struggles in the 21st century versus the 19th or 21st, 20th century um, is the role, the, the, the central, perhaps, pioneering role of women in, 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 in labor struggles today? I, I think that's a strong commonality. I mean, I think that women have long been the backbone of American labor. They've been on the forefront of some of the um, kind of riskier um, moves and strikes, and they've held the line often on strikes in industries that are largely worked by men, in fact. Um, so I would argue that women, especially immigrant women, have long been the backbone of American labor and the American labor movement. I think that, you know, we're, we're interestingly, perhaps, at a kind of a moment that eerily echoes the moment, the historical moments that I write about in my book, the early 1900s and the founding of the union that I worked right, for. And you, you, you make the triangle shirt waste factory fire and the label struggles associated with that, which was a primarily, I guess, a female labor struggle. You make that central in your narrative. You've done a lot of other writing about it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, that's a story that because I worked for Unite, which is a small kind of scrappy organizing union in the early 2000s, but was really an offshoot of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And in, you know, organizing committee meetings and trainings, um, we learned as organizers to tell that story. And there is something really interesting to me in the recitation of that story that it was taught to me in a certain way and then i i recited the story in a certain kind of way 
and thinking about storytelling in that way and its function in union organizing was really interesting to me. Yeah, and you write about that in a very nice way. Um, uh, yeah. your, uh, you, you write, uh, unions are built on solidarity and solidarity is a form of closeness, maybe even intimacy, a network of deep connection that rewires a splintered collective. And you're very inspired by, uh, you say, the first time I talked about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire of 1911 was at a union training in early 2004. I got choked up and had to bite down hard at the edge of my tongue to let go the catch in my throat. Why was that such an emotional moment for you, Daisy? It still is. It's hard for me to tell that story without being moved by it. And, you know, as a union organizer, I was taught to tell the story as a way to move workers, um, to allow them to understand the history of the union so that they began to identify with it and with its struggles and with its history. Why is it so emotional? Is there a, perhaps a danger of be, being nostalgic and idealizing something in the past, something quite romantic that can't really be reproduced today? Yeah, I think we tend to tell those stories in a way that's very cinematic. You know, we tell the story, you can imagine the moments that we, we tend toward in our storytelling about unions and labor history is the, you know, Sally Field standing on the table with the union sign. And likewise, in the story about the Triangle Fire, it was preceded by this uprising of 20,000 workers. And the way we tell that story is that there was a young woman named Clara Lemlich, a small woman. It seems very important in the telling of that story. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg style woman, I guess in her smallness, but yes, intellectual and physical bravery. That's right. And she was hoisted up onto the stage in front of thousands of workers at Cooper Union in New York City and called for a general strike. And the next day, 15,000 workers followed her into the street. You know, that's the way we tell that story. And I think, interestingly, it does a disservice to the work that we do in the labor movement, to all of the work that it took to get to a point where Clara Lemlich on the stage calling for a general strike actually meant something in the movement that people would follow her out onto the street. If I or if Alma or if anyone else just stood up on a stage tomorrow and called for a general strike, I don't know that people would follow us into the street. What preceded that was Clara Lemlich for years doing the very difficult work of building strike committees in nearly 500 garment shops across the city. And when she got up onto that stage, everyone there knew who she was and they knew she was gonna call for a strike, right? It's sort of like, um, you know, Rosa Parks. The first story we learned in elementary school about Rosa Parks is that she was a very tired woman and she just refused to get up from her seat in the bus. And then what happened after that was a movement that sort of spontaneously arose. Mm. And it turns out that's not, that story is also not true. I mean, it's true that she was probably tired, <laughs> but it's, she was an organizer, a long-term civil rights organizer and had planned that action and planned what would happen next. It's interesting to me that in our stories, I think particularly about women, we tend to decontextualize from the hard, kind of tedious grind of organizing. And we paint these cinematic moments of bravery. Um, or tragedy as some of these photos from the, from the fire, the deaths, the, a couple of sisters who died in the fire, yeah. people watching, and then the, the blaze that caused the havoc after the, uh, after the violence. 
I think that story is hard for me to tell, going back to your original question about this. <laughs> um, it's hard for me to tell without kind of choking up or feeling emotional because it was such a violent tragedy. I mean, it was an atrocity. 146 people died in that fire because they were locked in a factory so they wouldn't steal thread, you know? Um, and it reminds me of the sort of gruesome reality of industrial work and the greed of corporations and industry and bosses. David, um, things changed dramatically with Sarah, uh, with, Sarah uh, with Jessica Bruder. We talked about Amazon and this new precariat, the women featured in her book, um, uh, many of them working for Amazon, subsistence wages often barely being able to afford their own um, apartments, some of them homeless living in vans. Um, has anything really changed? Some people would suggest that things aren't quite as dire as they were in the early 20th century. You know, coming out of the Triangle Fire, we got a modicum of change. There are the OSHA exists now. There are fire safety laws. Children are not working in factories as they were in Triangle. There was an area in the factory called a kindergarten where very young children were finishing cloth um, for hours and hours a day, right? So there are laws in place to prevent some of the worst treatment, but by and large, things have not changed. Factories, especially industrial laundries, are dangerous places to work. And so are Amazon packing facilities, distribution centers. They're dangerous places to work. Um, they have not, you know, lifted people out of poverty. And in fact, we are now at a place where labor law is affords about the same protections for the right to organize as it did when Clara Lemlich was organizing that shop by shop strategy in New York City, which is to say next to none. If workers wanna form a union in this country, they really have to take collective action to force their employer to sit down and bargain changes and improvements with them because labor law is just loopholed and broken. Has the front changed? Uh, I know you were involved in, um, in the struggle for faculty rights, part-time faculty rights on universities. Um, has the, the struggle, the labor struggle in the 21st century focusing now on part-time university teachers and workers and non-physical labor kind of activities? I, so I'm interested in that shift. I'm interested in the fact that sort of cultural workers, librarians are organizing, right? Museum workers are organizing, contingent faculty or adjunct faculty are organizing. Um, service workers by and large, because we live in such a service-centered economy now in the US, service workers are organizing. But a lot of those, uh, some of those jobs, I think, especially um, in you know Amazon workers who are organizing, Starbucks workers who are organizing, Industrial laundry workers are still organizing all across the country. There, um, you know, mine workers right now are on one of the longest strikes in recent history um, in Alabama right now. So there is still very much sort of a, a blue collar um, momentum happening within the labor movement. Um, and I, I think it's, it's um, sort of, we're, we're happily joined by workers who are work in sort of cultural and higher ed institutions, because in order to have a vibrant 
labor movement in this country, we need to be growing rapidly in kind of all available sectors, right? And I think we need to be writing and reading books about it, which is exactly what Daisy Pitkin has done with On the Line, a a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a a union. Um, Daisy, you use the imagery, the metaphor... um, of moths in your book. Uh, I'm quoting you again from the book. By this time, early in 2004, you and I, um, and of course you're 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 talking to your co co conspirator in this narrative, had started calling ourselves La Palitas, the moths. What? Why the significance of moths in your work? What's the value of moths? You know, the moths were. They were real. They were there was a, sort of an interesting infestation of moths happening in Phoenix at the time that Alma and I started organizing her factory, and they were everywhere. So we would stand out. Her her factory was twenty ran twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. So a lot of the shift meetings that we held with her coworkers happened in the middle of the night in the blacktop of the parking lot outside of the factory under the floodlights there. And we would stand with groups of workers and run union meetings in the middle of the night, right? And the moths were just swarming the light above us and kind of plinking their bodies against the light. And it became a sort of ambient noise that the campaign lived through. Um, And it, it was hard for me to figure out how to write about the campaign without thinking about the moths because they were so present. And Alma and I did start calling ourselves Las Polillas, the moths, as a kind of joke. I had been reading Julia Alvarez's In the Time of the Butterflies in my motel room some nights. And of course, she writes about the Mirabal sisters who clandestinely uh, resisted the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. And they called themselves Las Mariposas, the butterflies. And we joked that we were their ugly cousins kind of running around the dust of Phoenix trying to grind out our organizing, bludgeoning ourselves against the porch light. So we started calling ourselves Las Polillas. And then after I left the labor movement, um, because I was burned out and sick and heartbroken because of some things that happened toward the end of the book, inside the union. Um, The moths became a a way, sort of a conduit for me to think about what happened. So I do a lot of research on moths, their biology, their place in Greek mythology. um, And I learned that moths are sort of interestingly connected to the early roots of the labor movement. And I do some writing about that. But I think the moths ultimately play a role in the book in that I think a lot about what it what it looks like for people to fight for unions and the kind of transformation that people undergo, that it's a kind of metamorphosis to witness your own capacity to fight and to witness the collective capacity of you and your coworkers to stand together and fight. It changes you. And so I think that the moths sort of connect in the end in that kind of way. Have we all gone through a collective metamorphosis, uh, Daisy, in terms of COVID? Uh, in these times, had a headline 
for many, the pandemic was a wake up call about exploitative work. This actually, I think, was a piece that you were mentioned in. Has COVID changed anything or is it just something that we'll forget in the next few months when we come to the next crisis, economic crisis of one kind or another? I can't imagine that we'll forget it, but I don't think that it is the sole cause of the kind of new wave of organizing that we're seeing now. I think that this new wave started before COVID and the pandemic, but the pandemic in some ways brought the crisis into sharp focus. Um, it was maybe, not to overextend the metaphor, but maybe a kind of chrysalis that people um, kind of sat in there in the kind of, <laughs> I write in the book about the Scientific American article about what happens inside a moth chrysalis, that a moth digests its own body. And there's a real question about whether the matter inside is actually alive or not, that it turns into a kind of soup. But inside that soup, there are certain highly organized cells called imaginal disks that then um, build out the new body of the moth, right? And I think that there were imaginal disks existed before the pandemic, right? And the pandemic put us into sort of the soup of the chrysalis. And what we're seeing now after the pandemic, though I don't think the pandemic is over, right? Um, but it, at this phase of the pandemic is sort of the, the explosive newness, I'd say optimistically, of a new labor movement. What about you? You use mayor nature in in both literal and metaphorical terms. What about the role of technology in changing all this, Daisy? We had uh, the progressive feminist labor uh, novelist uh, writer, very famous writer Jeanette Winterson, on the show, talking about how AI can liberate us. Um, also, Sherry Turkle, and they're a very prominent American writer on technology who warned us about the pretend empathy of artificial intelligence. She articulates mm -hmm. this in her new book, her autobiography, The Empathy Diaries. Can AI liberate us, Daisy Pitkin, or is it just another false dawn? You know, I, I love Sherry Turkle and I love her analysis of AI because she's such an expert on it. Um, I read her her every moment I every chance I get because she's such a wonderful thinker and yeah, writer. it's funny and she's a hero, a hero into many. Uh, yes, I, I did a show yesterday with another uh, writer who also said the same thing. She's clearly a, a, an inspirational figure for especially I think for younger women. I trust her, but I would say that you know I think we were talking about those cinematic moments of union organizing, and I would argue that that's not really where unions take shape or form. Those moments are demonstrations of something that took much longer to build. Sherry Turkle also writes about this, in fact, but that the time that people spend together doing the sort of less glamorous, boring work of organizing, the day-to-day, -day, like making copies of leaflets, getting in the car and driving around the city trying to find co-workers at home so we can talk to them about the union, packing folding chairs into the trunk of the car so that we can have organizing committee meetings in someone's front yard. Those kind of boring tasks, the time that they take together in the embodied world are really where solidarity is built. That's the foundation of the union. 
upon which those kind of more exciting cinematic moments are, are built. Um, so circling back to Sherry Turkle, she said that long before I did, and I trust her. <laughs> Well, we all trust Sherry, but I, I think we should trust Daisy Pitkin, her new book, on, on the Line, A Story of Class, Solidarity, and Two Women's Epic Fight to Build a Union, is a passionate, articulate, and important new book. Congratulations, Daisy, on the book. I think it's your first book, right? It is, yeah. Thank you. I hope not your last. I hope there'll be many more. Uh, what else should people be reading in late March uh, 2022, Daisy, in addition to uh, On the Line? can be anything. It doesn't have to be about labor. It can be fiction, nonfiction, what, do you, what have you been reading? I have really wide interests as a reader. So I'm interested, I read a lot about labor and I love Gabriel Wynant's new book, The Next Shift, um, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. It's a really smart look at how Pittsburgh, where I'm located, has changed over the years. Um, how steel workers went from having access to healthcare to then sort of requiring that an entire healthcare industry be built. Um, and it kind of examines the shift of labor and labor organizing in Pittsburgh, the great book. I also really love literary nonfiction that's essayistic, even kind of on the auto theory cusp. And I'm reading Isha Sabatini Sloan's Borealis, which is mm. a stunning essay um book um i would recommend to anyone i have to get them on the show daisy pitkin real honor to have you on the show congratulations again on the book uh, on the line as a labor organizer daisy pitkin in late march 2022 uh, who runs the world daisy who's in charge unfortunately i would say the robber barons of the new gilded age um, but more optimistically the young people who are joining the labor movement Let's say by 2023, they'll run the world.